This is Phantom Power. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. So, those of you who are longtime listeners have probably noticed that I'm pretty late in getting this first episode out to you. Things have been complicated. I've had a lot on my plate. It's generally good stuff on my plate. The big news for me is that I just received a public scholar grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And the grant means that I can buy myself out of teaching for the calendar year of 2024 and also have a bit of money left over to pay for some travel to archives and other sites that I need to do for my research. So this grant is is kind of a game changer for me. I mean, it's led to me finding an agent who is going to shop the book as a trade press book, which basically means a non-academic book of the sort that you would quite readily find in your local bookstore. And I feel incredibly fortunate to get this grant, but it also means that I'm going to have to pull back from focusing so much on the podcast, at least to the degree that I have in previous years. So I thought I would just talk a little bit about the grant, what my project is, and just generally share with you what's happening and what the implications are going to be for Phantom Power as we move forward this year. For those of you who are humanity scholars interested in communicating with a broader public, this might be of interest to you. I've been pivoting away from doing as many journal articles and doing more things for public consumption. So I thought maybe I would just spend this short episode talking about that journey a little bit. If you're not an academic or you just don't feel like hearing about the details of all this inside baseball and you just want the TLDR, the main idea here is that I'm going to try to keep this podcast going but it's going to be a little more stripped down. I'm thinking I'm just going to do straight interviews, no sound design, uh, no kind of imposing a narrative structure on the episodes. Those are really the most time consuming aspects. And, you know, I think it's going to be a situation where there's still going to be a lot of value to be had because these will just be one-on-one discussions with some really interesting people And I've been thinking about what I feel like talking about, things I'm interested in. And one of them that I have decided to focus on is audiobooks. I'm a big audiobook listener. So I'm going to kick off this season with a series on audiobooks. I'm going to start off with an interview with a scholar named Matthew Rubery, who has studied the history and aesthetics of audiobooks. And as I'm probably going to do maybe three episodes on audiobooks. I'll talk about that more uh, in the future. And then after those three episodes, I'm going to be talking with Elena Rezlegova about radio AI and her research into the legendary freeform radio station WFMU. That's a really great conversation. I'm sure we have a bunch of FMU listeners in this audience, so I think you'll like that one. And, you know, finally, like, When it comes to episode content, if any of you listeners have episode ideas, people you want me to interview, or if you're interested in producing a guest episode, please reach out. I'd love to collaborate. You can reach me at M, as in Mac, Haygood, S-H-A-G-O-O-D, at miamioh.edu. So that's the TLDR for folks who aren't interested in what's about to follow. 
for the rest of this episode. I don't know. I'm a little sheepish about doing this, but I'm just going to talk about like what my professional life is like these days, what I'm working on, what I'm worried about. So basically this is going to be a rant. It really feels like a best of times, worst of times for me in my career as a professor these days. I've been incredibly privileged to enjoy tenure at a university that has been supportive of me in many ways. And I have amazing colleagues whom I really care about and like to hang out with outside the office. So in some ways, my situation is about as secure as it gets for a humanities academic at a state school. That said, this is also a pretty shitty time to be a humanities professor. I mean, even with the great privilege of tenure, I don't feel entirely secure or well rewarded financially. So just for an example, I've been at Miami for 10 years now, and it wasn't that recently that I finally crossed the line where I was making as much money as many Cincinnati public school teachers. And no shade on them, they deserve every penny they make, but I mean, in order to get this job, I had to move to Ohio, I had to compete against hundreds of people, I had to you know, write a book to get tenure, so on and so forth, achieve a terminal degree, a PhD. And so that's just the reality for a lot of us working in the, in the humanities and we're the lucky ones, right? If you do manage to get that kind of secure position with tenure, those are very rare positions. Academics who are in more precarious positions are paid even less and are fired at will which is what happened at our university. During the pandemic, our university refused to renew the yearly contracts of hundreds of visiting assistant professors. It was just a ruthless move in the first year of a pandemic, cutting loose people who had moved to Ohio for these jobs and had no hope of getting another academic job in that moment. And that's when I really, you know, became interested in organizing in earnest, you know, um, there were folks out there who were interested in unionizing the university. I was a supporter, but I hadn't been active in that effort. But when, when I saw what happened to the VAPs, that's when I really joined in, in earnest. And this year, after three years of organizing, we won our union vote at Miami. Although the university and the state labor board did not allow us to include our remaining VAPs in our ranks. And now the university is showing tremendous bad faith in negotiations with the union. They're stalling, they're fighting every move, they're holding most of our negotiations on a remote location that most of us don't have the time to go to in a different town from where most of us teach. And then meanwhile, the university is looking to close numerous humanities programs and asking the humanities to reform their structure and their emphasis in light of market concerns. A lot of this is probably necessary given the system that we have, right? You know, humanities enrollments really are dropping nationwide. However, I would argue that this has more to do with the way we don't fund public education, which drives up student debt, constrains students from engaging with ideas, and prevents them from studying what they really want to study. And then on top of all of this, the Ohio State Senate has proposed a bill that would potentially make aspects of my teaching illegal. You know, those aspects around race and diversity, 
they would basically force faculty in Ohio to publish extremely detailed syllabi for every class that we teach so that right-wing trolls can search for ideas they don't like and harass us. They want to make it illegal for us to strike, and they're putting severe constraints on what we can bargain around as unions. And, And so, you know, it looks like this bill is likely to pass in this session. We're doing what we can to fight it, but I'm not that optimistic. Oh, and I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. The Ohio legislature also passed a separate law that will establish what is basically a right-wing ideas center to be housed in the College of Arts and Science. No less than 10 tenure-track positions on our campus are going to be provided. They provided at least $2 million for this, but not in perpetuity. So my guess is that at some point, you know, while we're talking about how to save the humanities from a lack of interest and how to not fire faculty, we're also going to hire all these new folks and eventually the funding for those folks will run out. Just a side question, where are they going to find all these right-wing people with PhDs (laughs) in the humanities? I don't know. That's kind of interesting. But yeah, it's a total mess. I've been here for 10 years. I've never seen morale so low. I fantasize about going somewhere else, going on the job market, but my wife has a great job. My kids love their school. Cincinnati is a great town. Life is so good in so many ways. So over the past several years, I've been looking for opportunities to speak with different and perhaps broader audiences. Basically thinking about how can I be more of a public scholar? I have super mixed feelings about this because I'm a firm believer in the mission of public universities. It feels a little bit like a capitulation to the neoliberal forces that are destroying the humanities to be thinking about a freelance career outside the academy. So I'm not necessarily thinking about exit strategies, but at least I'm thinking about how can we humanity scholars be communicating with other publics alongside what we do in the classroom. And those things can be mutually reinforcing. I only teach undergraduate students, which sets me up well to speak to a broader public. I have to translate the jargon of my field for freshmen every semester. And likewise, if I make a podcast episode with broad appeal, it will often work quite well as a classroom resource. Uh, So, you know, these things can be mutually reinforcing, speaking to the public, speaking to our students creating things for the public, creating things for the classroom. But I'll be honest, my long-term goal is to make working at my university optional. I love teaching my students. I love my colleagues. But I want the option to walk if politicians and university administrators and trustees make this job just too miserable and too poorly compensated to be worth it. I think a lot of folks who got PhDs think of their work in the academy as a calling, but the people who run the show think of it as a business. And if we don't do the same, at least to some extent, we'll just get chewed up and spit out. So my strategy is to have solidarity with my colleagues in our union and to fight that way, but also in parallel be developing a career path where I can be useful and marketable outside of the academy. And so for many years now, I've been gradually moving towards more public-facing scholarship. I've been doing this podcast for the past five years, obviously, 
which gets a lot of academic listeners, but most of my patrons and folks who email me are just super smart non-academics. There are often people in creative disciplines who are just hungry for new ideas and inspiration. And then beyond this podcast, I've been gradually working on my writing, trying to work out the academic ticks and bugs, <laughs> become a smoother, more interesting writer. I've attended workshops on public-facing writing hosted by Miami University's Humanities Center. And this summer, I went to an amazing week-long Toronto workshop led by Evelyn Jago and Gretchen Baca. And that was really, really a great experience. And, you know, over time, I've been shopping pieces to venues like the late great tech website or tech criticism website, Real Life, um, and also placed, you know, pieces with The Atlantic and The Washington Post. So when I was applying for a research leave, there was this requirement that I look for external funding, another one of our cost-cutting measures around here. And I hadn't had a research leave in quite some time, so... I really wanted to pursue one. One of our deans, Renee Bernstein, said, why don't you apply for the NEH Public Scholar? And I said, okay. In truth, I'd been contemplating this grant already because I'd seen my friend and colleague, the feminist historian Kimberly Hamlin, get one of these, and I saw what a game changer that had been for her career. So I applied, not really expecting to get it, and then it came through. Here I am, the dog that caught the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and now scrambling to, to sort of uh, get all of the other work that I already had on my agenda for this research leave, kind of get all that work done and then launch into this project, which I have tentatively titled Quiet Storm, America's Noise Industry and the End of Listening. I'm sure that title will change, but just to give you a bit of a pricey since the 1960s, there's been this unobtrusive industry that's carefully domesticated noise. It's turned noise away from being an unwanted byproduct of industry and turned it into a desirable domestic partner, a first-rate workmate. And so in this book, what I'm going to do is introduce readers to the scientists, inventors, and entrepreneurs who objectified noise as a specific kind of sound wave and then converted it into a useful raw material and then marketed it to the public as a technology of self-care. So the book tells the story behind white noise machines, nature sound apps, ambient sound streams, noise-canceling headphones, all of these different technologies that we used to shape our listening, attention, and culture today. But the book has a deeper purpose as well. I want to identify why listening has become so fraught and why attention has become so frayed. What are the cultural and political and economic changes that have left listening this way? And I want to sort of put aside cliches about screen time and use a sonic focus to offer a new way of thinking about communication in the digital age. So I'm gonna foreground these background sounds and the changes that they affect and hopefully explain and help folks grapple with the sort of cacophony that technological communication has become in recent decades. So I'm thinking about this book as being in some ways similar to books like Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, 
or Johan Harai's Stolen Focus, but with this sort of sonic focus, right? And, and, and possibly even an enhanced audiobook or podcast accompaniment like David Hendy's fantastic series, Noise, A Human History, that he did for the BBC in association with his book by that same name. Now, for those of you who read my first book, Hush, Media and Sonic Self-Control, you might be saying, hey, uh, Mac, that sounds a lot like your first book. And you'd be completely right. But one of the frustrations I had after I wrote this book is that I didn't really write it for the public. And when I would go around and give talks to people, I got such receptive audiences who wanted to talk about the fan that they needed to sleep or the white noise machine that they can't live without or the way they use noise canceling headphones to navigate their day. And so I'm going to be doing different things in this book. I'm instead of doing things like picking intellectual fights with my field of media studies or diving deep into the minutia of affect theory, I'm going to be fleshing out the characters in the stories. There's some really fascinating people. I'm going to be sort of helping people think critically and practically about listening in their own everyday lives. Something that would probably be too, you know, self-helpy for my tenure reviewers if, they, if I had tried to do that in my book for Duke University Press. So at this point, I have found an agent. She is guiding me through crafting a proposal and a sample chapter that we are hoping will attract, you know, multiple publishers who want to put it out. And once I have a deal in hand and I have an editor to work with, that's when I can really start researching and writing the book in earnest. And I could definitely do an entire show on what this process has been like. It's been really interesting. I've had a huge learning curve. I've learned a ton of stuff. So if anyone is interested in any of this kind of stuff, I could definitely do an episode about, about this work of trying to write a trade press book and trying to get into that world. Most of this stuff I knew nothing about even two years ago. So I'm happy to pass along what I've learned to folks if that would be of interest. But basically, that's it. That's what I'm up to. I just thought I would fill you all in. I hope you haven't found this too self-indulgent. I, I just wanted to explain like why I'm so late with the first episode. There's been a lot going on. And I would just want to explain the changes that are happening to the podcast, at least for the next year or so. Am I going to make a full-fledged career as an author and public speaker and quit my university job? I mean, probably not, you know? But this has given me something in my work life to sort of look forward to when I get up in the morning, besides the other thing, which is our faculty and librarian union. And yeah, that's it. So thanks for listening. So look for our first real episode coming up in the coming weeks with the Harvard-trained Dr. Matthew Rubery, who teaches modern literature at Queen Mary University of London. And we're going to be talking all things audiobook.